Non-benders alike, welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's brand new podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney. And I am Dante Bosco. Well, hopefully you were with us for our very first premiering number one episode of many to come of Braving the Elements. We, of course, recapped and did a little bit of a deep dive into episode one of Avatar The Last Airbender from book one, The Boy in the Iceberg. Now, we are going to be heading back over to episode 102 to talk about that soon. But right now we had to hit pause on the recapping because we have... Very, very special guests today. In fact, this is such a special conversation that we are going to be splitting it up into two episodes. Let me put it this way. It's like our two dads are on the show. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I mean, listen, Cora and, and, and Zuko would not exist without our two dads. I'm sure that's a characterization that everyone will be uncomfortable about forever. And yet I've said it. <laughs> this is a very, very special episode for us. We're so glad that they came on early on so that we could get a little backstory, but also hopefully not ask them every single question they've ever been asked in the 20 almost years that it's been since the very seed of the idea for Avatar was created. So whew, please welcome our two dads. <laughs> the creators of Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, Avatar Studios. Please welcome Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konetsko. Yay! Yay! I'm hearing the fanfare right now. People clapping over the airwaves as they're listening to this. Hello, children. Hello, son and daughter. Mike, I'm going to call you Mike for the rest of the time. Yes, that's fine. My, my friends, my, my children call me Mike. Mike D. Mike D. Yeah, I <laughs> realize that I always refer to you as just Mike DiMartino, and now I'm feeling like I need. I should have slipped back in the the L Dante, <laughs> the L Dante. No, you threw that Dante. And when I first read the script, it said uh, Michael Dante DiMartino, and I was like, and I was convinced one of the reasons I got cast because we share the same name. Definitely. Well, I will say, I do recall. Here's an early story for you. That we'd get the like auditions on, you know, c- CD back in the day. Oh, People wow. People used CDs. And, I, and they did like list the, the actor or actress's names on them. And I remember seeing Dante Bosco and I jokingly said like, that's our guy right there. That's going to be him. <laughs> and sure enough, it really did end up being you. So There you go. It worked out. The name worked out for me. I like it. Cut to later today, Dante's like, I wonder if that is the only reason I got the part. Actors are very insecure. I've just discovered that's like, the only reason, the only one. <laughs> this is awesome for us. We love any opportunity to see you. And I'm sure you know how important it is to us that we, when you see us, you're probably reminded of the most stressful times in your life. So that's uh, very positive for us. Yeah, but you you all were one of the fun parts <laughs> you know like <laughs> towards the end mike was in a lot more of the records than i was but when so when i did get to go it was an even uh, extra special treat you know and i always love hanging out with the actors and especially you two and you know i don't have children so all of the avatar characters are like my children i always think of them that way so it's not that you two lovely adult human beings are my children but yeah Cora and Cora and Aang, you know, they, they are. And my mom, I have a lot of nephews and a niece, but my mom would always say that that Avatar was her other grandchild, you know. And, uh, oh, wow. It, it takes a lot of attention, like raising a child. <laughs> so. Tell grandma we said hi. I was going to say will. we're ready I to will. meet her at any time. It's funny you would say that because she yeah. is actually going to be on our next episode. I know it seems like we jumped oh, around yeah? a little bit <laughs> and um, started contacting your family members, but we're just real enthused about this podcast. We're real enthused about it. You know, I did that thing where, uh, and I think Dante is more chill about this stuff because Dante is the cool kid and I'm the nerd between the two of us. And so he probably didn't do what I did, which was like such a gross deep dive into stuff that I've actually, I've come all the way back around to having hurt myself because my brain stopped being able to take in all the information that's out there on the web about Avatar. 
So everything just sort of like melted away. So now I'm just back to where I where I was. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I must know everything. The creators are coming on the podcast. Yeah, now I feel bad. Like we we scared you into it. Like like you were, had to cram for a test or something. It's okay to ask us a question that's been asked before. It's just when. So how did it all begin? <laughs> What's, what, if you could bend one element. I know. How did you ever come up with the idea? This has never before been told. A story you'll never hear anywhere else. <laughs> no, there are a lot of places that, uh, that the story has been told, um, certainly on various uh, and sundry Tumblr blogs. And Mike, I think you have a little more on your website now that's a kind of a more recent thing right that you have the sort of hub of a website where people can go uh i do have a website uh but it, all the like blog stuff is kind of old it's from my I... blog i haven't, we're, I haven't but actually... we're kind of old yeah <laughs> i would say like when people you know the thing we usually refer people to is like the the art of avatar book because like i feel like that's one of the definitive like places where we sort of told like where it began and the early development and you get to see the early art and all that stuff. Oh, the book that I was cramming even as we were logging on. Was I supposed to read that textbook? Was I, is that textbook I was supposed to, I have it here also. This is why you're the cool kid. You're the cool kid. That's right. And you're, That's and you're right. the one who drops profound references to other like literary gems while I'm scrambling to the remember something like very specific. I just try to take it in. The crazy thing is it's 20 years ago, fellas. I mean, almost, you know, almost, yeah. almost 20 yeah. years ago. And obviously I was there too. And I, it, it's, it so blows my mind when I'm talking to fans or cons. And these kids are, I mean, barely 20, if not. And I'm like going, Hannah, we did, we did this. We started doing this <laughs> like before you were born. Like, how is that? Yeah. It seems yeah. like yesterday, fellas, like going in there and auditioning yeah, with you guys. Like- that long ago but i have all these crazy memories of the whole journey i remember yeah. at the premiere party where where brian handed the mic to you at, at the premiere party. he's like i want to have you know it's like the beastie boy reference like i'm handing the mic to mike d <laughs> like i have these like weird memories in my head and i'm like how was that that many years ago well and we were like we were young for our show creators and showrunners oh then. for sure um, i thought you guys were young too i'm like do these yeah. guys know what they're doing not really. <laughs> <laughs> we cast you because your name was Dante. What does that tell you? Good taste. I was like 25, almost turning 26 when we came up with the idea in 2002. And, you know, it took some years through development and working on the test pilot and then getting into production. But by the time we were like actually running the, the production, I think I was 28. So, you know, so we were sort of known as like the young, the young guys for a while and then we once had this like meeting this was i think during Cora, like some live action network pulled us in and we had a meeting and they were like you know you guys are like veterans you know you're like veteran world builders and we came out of the meeting and i was like wait did we become the old guys and there was no (laughs) in between We, we went from young guys to old guys and i everything in the middle was a blur yeah, I can't even I mean, I Dante and I do cons together and and I now have kids who are teenagers coming up and saying I grew up watching Cora and that's a mind blower and then and then I look over and in Dante's line and someone who's like twice their age is saying I grew up watching Avatar and you know right, people yeah. are naming their kids after characters from True. the series and I mean it, it's it's really it's really something and that is a different way like obviously we all have our own internal clock or lack thereof in terms of how we account for time going by and if you're a parent you know it looks different because you, you're seeing it through your kids and if you're not maybe it's through your work or your animals or your relationship or whatever but it's really interesting when you sort of see it reflected back to you through someone who like their marking time by naming their child Cora is it's a whole different experience and and time warps all of a sudden it's like wait a minute hold on are you from the past the future what's happening this doesn't seem possible uh but somehow it happened and you guys knew each other 
far longer than the inception of Avatar. Because, of course, you met as students at Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, right? And Brian, I believe you were dressed as Iguana Man. I feel that has not been uh, addressed deeply, (laughs) deep cut deeply enough in the art book. Uh, I'd like to know uh, a little more about why Iguana Man. And I consider that to be the first hybrid animal. Uh, because you were part yeah. you part iguana, so that's basically <laughs> well, the first hybrid animal from Avatar. The, the well, high, what are you guys the, doing at RISD? Jeez. Well, the 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 first hybrid animal that inspired me was Opus, um, sure, from Bloom County, because you know he he was just a penguin, but he didn't really look like a penguin. You know, he had this big, huge round schnoz, yeah. and um, and I loved him and I actually just found the stuffed animal that I had at my mom's house I brought nice. it back home to LA and so when I was in like second or third grade I would just draw hybrid animals it was just something I did and that was a time when I used to just lay on the floor and just draw from my imagination and then a few years later I got more into I mean I t- always took art classes outside of school and stuff but I got more into like music and playing guitar and I wasn't so focused on drawing um, even though I still considered myself an artist but you know ended up going to art school and I'll get into the whole story about meeting Mike but it was like it wasn't until yeah I'd been working on shows for other people's shows for like four years but I really hadn't been doing drawings for myself Um, I would just do drawings for a class assignment or drawings for a job and Um, when Mike and I were trying to come up with a show, I started finally doing like drawings for myself at night. And when we started what would turn into Avatar, it was kind of the first time in my adult life. I was just really sitting there drawing like I, like when I was a kid, just, there was no assignment in mind. I was just letting my imagination run free and my brain just went to that second or third grade state and I just started drawing hybrid animals and I didn't question them I wasn't like this is a so-and-so and you know coming up with some cute like combination it was it was honestly just a, just tapping into that old thing of being a kid and Miyazaki you know so I think it was like the cat bus and it sure. was sort of just this floating floating manatee bovine of some sort but like with Opus like I wasn't thinking like I just thought oh in this world this is what a bison looks like you know, it's right. just different than ours. You know, it wasn't that it was right, right, it was right. such a hybrid thing. I remember seeing one of the um, South Korean animators saying something about feeling very worried about having to animate uh, Appa and like sort of not knowing like, why does it? This is very strange. They have, he has six legs. What am I going to do with this? Like, should I make him insect? How is this going to work? And then cited Cat Bus as a very reassuring yeah. reference, like, oh, thank goodness for Cat Bus. Now I can wrap my head around <laughs> Appa. Finally. Does Cat Bus have like eight or ten legs or something like that? Yeah, Listen, that makes six a dream come true. It's just easy peasy. Six legs, psh, ain't no thing. So back to Iguana Man. But yeah, Mike, Mike and I met, yeah, when I, I transferred to RISD. Uh, and Mike had had also been a transfer. Uh, but he was two years ahead of me. So when I got there, Mike was a senior and I was a sophomore. But our mutual friend, Angus McLean, who's a big animator and director over at Pixar, now he he ended up being my roommate at RISD. And he brought me over to a party that Mike and our friend Kurt were having. RISD parties. This is the meet cute. Now we have, we've sort of heard Brian coming in on his side, Iguana Man style, and then Mike. Yeah. Here you are situated at the same party having transferred in. Was it a costume party? No. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. There were a lot of those. My my memories are always a little foggy of, of those years, but uh because I've I've always like mixed up the like iguana man thing with like the first time I met Brian, but that was not apparently the first time. So I think I actually have very little memory of the first time <laughs> I met Brian, unfortunately. You know, we... that I don't remember it, that I, party. I will concede that actually that might have been the first time we met because uh, I did tag along with Angus to a Halloween party. Oh, so... Um, so it is so possible, bad. yeah. So the whole Iguana Man thing, if you've not seen pictures from my 
you know, Instagram or whatever. It was my friend Michelle had designed this really cool sparkly, like <laughs> green lame costume, and it had like the <laughs> I don't know, a little turkey gizzard thing, whatever that is on a, <laughs> the frill. It had like a frill. And uh, she let me borrow it. And I just, uh, I didn't know there was like a, a scrawny superhero alter ego inside of me. <laughs> but when I got this costume, I just started running around with like Nerf guns and kind of creating <laughs> this character around it. Um, and then I ended up making like a, my own version of the costume but yeah it was it was michelle's kind of her kind of character but i like drew comics around it and stuff so yeah i don't know maybe maybe i was wearing that i did graduate in it did you really did the, the iguana man <laughs> costume made multiple appearances around the campus at RISD, Here, here's saying. the thing at, at RISD and in art school in general you know it, you are encouraged to sort of dress up in something imaginative or in a costume so yeah it's not it's not that weird at RISD to graduate in an iguana man costume. Now I'm actually disappointed because I'm like, oh, you could have made it fa- like, oh, you should have made another costume. Now I'm actually kind of disappointed that it was just iguana man gets trotted out again when he could have made it's like brand new. <laughs> you guys are like the pride of RISD. I spent a lot of time on it. I spoke at Brown University and all the RISD kids bum rushed the show and the Brown kids would not let them into the into the show. Oh, I and love then, this. I mean, I know, and they're like chanting outside and like trying to disrupt kind of like the, the <laughs> keynote thing I'm doing. And then afterwards, uh, you know, I did a signing and then we, I mean, I signed well well till after midnight and just the pride of RISD students being a part of, you know, the creators of Avatar. Even when I go to cons, if someone's from RISD, they got to come and talk to me. Like, you know, I went to RISD. I'm like, I know. Oh, that's cool. I know the, the creators of RISD. And you guys are like, you know. We're not the, the creators of RISD. I want to be clear. I was not, not the there, the I was <laughs> not the there in 18, 1875 or whenever. But definitely RISD kids roll hard for you guys. I was like, wow, they're, they are going hard. Like, hard, hard enough that I love it. they're willing to disrupt and ruin your speech. The person they wanted to no, meet. No, they just they wanted the Brown like students to know, like, outside. you know, you guys got Dante Bosco, but like, he really belongs to us. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do remember when I, you know, knew about RISD as in high school, it was it was because of I was a big Talking Heads fan, and David Byrne had gone to to RISD along with a yeah. few of the other. Yeah, they formed there at the, in the tap room. So, like, to me, like, when I, in my – my day like that was the like oh my god so cool david byrne went there i I get to go there that's i think david um, byrne got kicked out even Uh, cooler that's even cooler that's even cooler i think he he might have left but there's a few there's a few big names over there like bob richardson who's a big cinematographer and then we were there at the same time seth mcfarland was there angus the most scottish name outside of (laughs) scotland i've ever heard well, his name is Angus Tyler Sebastian McLean. <laughs> oh, man. Of, of the Clan McLean. <laughs> but even with all those luminaries who have come through RISD through the years, I did read in the art book that when you, Mike, first moved out to California, you got a job almost immediately, even though you only really had one contact, right? Yeah, it was a mix of, like, good luck and, like, a contact that paid off like and it was also a, a time when like there wasn't a ton of animation yet but it was starting to like pick up my first job was on king of the hill when it was just starting so there was like simpsons were around there was king of the hill and there were a few other shows around that time like the primetime animation stuff that was like picking up so like they just needed people to work there was it wasn't like now where like there's so many people coming out to like get jobs in animation um, it was definitely not the cool, coolest thing to do back then. But so there were a lot of good opportunities um, if you were in the right place at the right time and could draw. But it would ebb and flow. I mean, there would be in those, even now, it, you know, it happens. But it, in that era, like the late 90s, early 2000s, there would be like when I came out two years after Mike, they called it the tune boom. Um, and there are a lot of sitcom animation shows picking up but then there'd be a slump you know Mm -hmm. a lot of you'd see the studios kind of empty out and a lot of people looking for work um it would pick back up again so it was kind of cyclical but yeah mike mike was actually like a good student where he would like get internships and 
I was like always too lazy to get internships, but his internship led to that. That's how he found that connection. It was John Rice, right, Mike? Yeah, John Rice was a he's a big director now. Uh, but I worked with he was a director on King of the Hill at that time, and he had he had come from he worked at MTV Animation, so that's where I got my first job. It was kind of like an in, well, it was it was technically a job, kind of like an internship because it was just a, for the summer, but. Um, it was on this show called MTV's The Head, and it was oh, like yeah. it was the era of you know the era of Beavis and Butthead, and I think they were doing Daria at the time. But it was when MTV Animation was a, still a thing. So I worked there for a summer before my senior year, and and kind of kind of understood like how animation works and like how the productions work and stuff like that. That's that's the thing I I, I want to like I try to included in my talks to schools and and um i'm actually talking to some RISD students tomorrow evening about pitching and i think everybody gets really focused on like the idea like i need a really awesome idea and sure that is obviously crucial to a good pitch but part of like getting a show made and then actually like getting a show picked up and then actually making it is understanding how a show runs. And the thing I, I, I'm just going to go up and brag about Mike for several minutes now. Cause like, yeah, I was a sophomore and Mike was a senior, but we were just part of this crew that all helped each other make films and stuff. And they were older than me. So they had more interesting homework and I had more fun helping them on their cool, like senior films. And Mike and I just clicked. We just really hit it off. And Mike at, you know, what was he, 21, 22, he was already, like, running a production. Like, he had an incredibly ambitious 2D animated project that had cells and it had backgrounds. And he just had this whole production, like, organized and broken down. And at one point, we all of us got together in this, like, uh, what do you call it? There's like a soundstage almost in the RISD film department. And Mike had set up all these tables and we just had movies playing and everybody was, a bunch of us came and we were painting cells. So we like Mike set up like an animation studio and had, you know, this incredibly ambitious, very professional student film at the end of it. And a lot, most student films, people come up with something really ambitious. They bite off more than they can chew. They get about, pencil test done for about half of it. They color like a couple shots and then they cry and turn it in and, and <laughs> no. like, right. and then they graduate, you know? And like Mike, <laughs> like put together this totally professional thing. So like he took that experience at the head and he paid attention and he under he like saw how the production worked, how animation gets made, what the different roles are and stuff. So when he came out here and met John Rice, didn't John hire you initially as a storyboard artist and then like yeah within months promoted you to assistant director? Really? Yeah, I think after my first board or something. He did one sketch and John was like, You're in the house. I forget. It was it wasn't very long, yeah. <laughs> it was... Yeah. And, and when you work with people that are cool like that, that don't they're not all about like seniority and politics. They just go, Oh, this kid gets it. Promotion, you know, I'm giving you more responsibility. So by the time I came out, Mike was 24 and he was a he was a director on the first season of Family Guy. Yeah, that's um, huge. That's But he crazy. had a shaved head and a full beard. <laughs> so all the other directors thought he was like 30 something. <laughs> and there were a bunch of directors on that show, but Seth and Fox loved Mike's episodes and they were like, "Why can't you all be more like this guy?" And then they found out that Mike was 24. And one <laughs> oh of the directors goodness. like flipped out and like threw a chair. It was like so, all right. But there's always that dude in productions starting from very young doing for no money and everything to now. It's like you need that guy that for some reason everyone will work for that guy or girl. There's that person that attracts people and people just want it, like draw, you know, do stuff for them for free. For some reason, there oh, you if you can't have a production without that guy that everyone's like down to do stuff for they don't even know why like well mike asked me to do it so I figured, yeah i don't even know why people helped me but i appreciate that they did back then <laughs> i was like <laughs> i just said uh, you had, were so organized you yeah, were organized I mean, that was too it's like you don't want to yeah. take advantage of people's t- 
time and, and effort. So it was like, okay, I know everyone's going to come. So like, I want to make sure like they feel like they, they got something to do and they know what's going on and, you know, and, and it, and it worked out and we got cells painted and what was that? What was that project? Oh, you guys are talking about Mike's short film project at RISD, right? Is that the one with the TV in his belly? Yeah. Yes, man. See, Janet. Janet has done her homework. Oh, yes, it was scary. called. Damn, Kid, it was called Kid New Year and Billboard. It was this. Kid I, I don't even know what you would call it, but it was like this, this, this kid. It was kind of like sci-fi ish, I guess. This kid hanging out with this. I guess he was kind of an android. He had a TV in his stomach, and they drove around in an ice cream cart in the sewers of the city, and they had these these girls on roller skates chasing them who are called the alligator girls. And um, one of the voice actresses who was one of those characters got her character tattooed did, on her. Did. So a friend of ours Whoa, still has wow. a tattoo <laughs> from Mike's wow. film. But yeah, I mean, another friend of ours is super talented, you know, is art school. He just sort of flaked out and Mike had all these backgrounds that needed to get done. And I was like, well, I can help you. So even though we did have those, a night or two where it was a whole crew of us, I would just go hang out in Mike's apartment and we would just sit there and just work together. Kind of, you know, side by side, he was working on, I think he was animating and I was painting backgrounds and like something clicked. We just, we got along well, we worked together well. Um, I looked up to him. I had a lot to learn from him. Um, I think he liked my art making and when he and our friend Kurt graduated again, they were two years ahead of me. It was just this, I mean, I remember Kurt actually saying it out loud, but it was just, it, it, I was going to say it was an unspoken thing, but it was actually spoken. He's just like, we're going to go out to LA. <laughs> what are those unspoken spoken things? Yeah. He's like, we're going to go out to LA. I guess like the agreement was unspoken, but you know, he just sort of declared, he's like, we're going to go out to LA. We'll get established. You come out and then we're all going to make films together. We're like, cool. Sounds like a plan. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> I finished up at RISD, but, you know, Mike had that one contact. We had a friend who was from the L.A. area. They all went and lived at that person's parents' house until they all got jobs <laughs> and could get apartments. Two years later, I came. I lived on a futon mattress in Mike's dining room for a couple of weeks, and I got a job, like, the second day because he brought me to work like his son. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was like, bring your son to work day. And I came and got... What y'all drawn? What y'all drawn over there? It kind of, actually, you joke, but that's sort of what happened. I just started, he's, Mike's like, here's some characters we need drawn. So I just started wow. drawing them in the Family Guy style, which I, you wow. know, it was the first time I was drawing it. The art director came in and he was like, who are you? Where did you come from? Do you want to take a test? And usually you get like a week to take a test, but I turned it in the next morning and got hired. And so I've just started working. But again, now we were in a professional setting, but I my cube was right outside of Mike's door. So we were still kind of next to each other, like in college. Sometimes I was working with him, sometimes with other directors. But I guess it's too much to hope that there would be at some point a moment where you would yell from your office to the cubicle, let's go, get in here. <laughs> I guess that's not really the relationship you two had, really at all. Mike doesn't really talk that loud. <laughs> yeah. No. Mike's a soft-spoken guy. But it was cool. And then, you know, he helped me get, he definitely helped me get my foot in the door. Um, and then I got an apartment. And then other RISD friends from my year started coming and staying on my couch. And then I would help them get jobs. And then they would get their own apartment. And then the next generate you know the next class graduated and they would stay on their couches and so How we had a good number of years wow, where there you was that whole system going on seth mcfarland was at RISD also he was a year ahead of me yeah and then, oh, wow and then he had yeah he had i mean he blew up crazy like yeah, not long crazy. after moving out here it was, yeah it's pretty i wild. think the point the point is you don't have to go to RISD. you just have to it's good to and I, you know the word networking can be so gross but it's more yeah. of like supporting just supporting Absolutely. your friends and you can be at you know a, a school in LA in Pasadena that I'm associated with is not in a professional capacity but I've taken classes there I've given lectures there um, is the concept design academy and that's an awesome school being taught by professionals in the industry out here but it's like just 
find like-minded people, whether or not you're in a school setting and just learn from each other, support each other, push each other. Um, and, and back to my original point of Mike as like this, you know, paid intern, it's like, pay attention to how stuff is done. If you're just blundering in and you, even if you have the awesome pitch, but you're, everybody's like, this person doesn't even know how animation gets made. You know, why would they risk millions of dollars of a corporation's money on you just for some idea when you don't know how to make it? You don't know how to build a crew you don't know how to run a production and, and not like we knew it's not that we do everything which you know you learn a lot on the job but you pay attention and yeah absolutely and just to go back to what you were saying about networking i have the same those same conversations with myself in my head because that it feels like it flies in the face of everything that i believe in or just think you know things that i sort of didn't want to participate in in coming down to la you know very reluctant and being like if i have to hear someone say it's who you know or you know it's networking <laughs> i'm going to barf but then like you realize that all the stories you're telling maybe not all of them, but some of them, you realize you're just describing networking to someone else's ears. Like on the outside of it, it sounds like they would use the word networking, but when it's you and it's you're on the inside of it, and it just means these are people that I've loved working with that, you know, we there was a mutual respect and there was a shared vision. And of course you, you know, feel compelled to work with that person again, not to say that there's no room to bring in new people or new spirit to that, but you're like, oh, I guess that is... Like the the corporate term for those things is networking. Interesting. Yeah, I hate it when it's. I mean, I can't do anything like that when it's like forced. Where it's like forced yeah. networking. It's like, like you it's better go to be this party because you don't know who's going to be there. Yeah, and then it feels like really weird and awkward. And yeah. that is weird. But, but of course, I grew up. I grew up here and in this whole town. Yeah. So I'm always like, people tell me about that. I'm like, no, it's not who you know. It's who knows you. And what they think of you. The twist. (laughs) They're like, oh. I'm like, yeah, it's not who you know. (laughs) Who knows you? But there's also, it's like who you get to know. I think that's the part of networking. People think it's just some sort of VIP pass or, oh, I went to this call. I know there's, there are heated debates online and it seems like there are these mafias from these various art schools. And, you know, there's, there's truth to that. And there's also what we're describing which is just it's not networking in the sense of oh if you just know this person they're the gatekeeper and then glory and riches and fame uh, (laughs) are behind the the it's 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 i would say it's who you get to know meaning you get to know you work and that person goes oh wow and that was how we we met eric coleman you know i worked with him on uh, Invader Zim, and he we got to know each other. It's not that it was just like, hey, RISD guy, let's give him a show. <laughs> you know, it definitely <laughs> didn't didn't happen that way. He saw how I worked under pressure on a very creative and very ambitious, difficult production, and was like, that's the kind of person I want to work with. After having worked with me for over right. a year, you know, maybe two years. So when I hear networking, I think of those like company soirees and everyone standing around with a drink, looking nervous. And, <laughs> exactly. And like, who can I? Who can I meet? Talk to. Yeah, but it's 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 not that. It's it's like oh, I can rely on that person. Oh, that person works really well with others. Oh, that person is is very professional and creative and problem solving. You've told the story about. Uh pitching to Eric a few times. One thing that I found so funny was this idea that he wanted you to make sure you knew it should be about a kid's POV. And I think it's, I think maybe Brian, that was you, but you said something that he was like, you'd be surprised how many stories are pitched to us from the perspective of a tax accountant or like a brothel. (laughs) And I was like, it's Nickelodeon. I don't, that's mind blowing That really happens. That happens all the time. Yeah, know your audience is probably... And that's yeah. another thing that you've kind of talked about is as much as maybe someone would love to think that the two of you, you know, were in a magical cave just like coming up with these wonderful ideas and then you emerged from it with this complete idea of The Last Airbender and then took it to Nickelodeon and they were like, it doesn't matter if we want this or not. We must make it. Like, this is history in the making. That it was even a collaborative process with the network that they, you know, that Eric was able to sort of 
talk with you about how to kind of tailor something to what they were looking for, in a, but in a way that also allowed you to have your own voice and kind of focus in on what was exciting to you about that stuff, right? I always call Eric the, the godfather of Zuko. Zuko's character completely came out of a, of a note from Eric. We had our big Fire Lord, you know, the big bad boss at the end of the story, and, and Eric was like, yeah, that's cool, but you need some boots on the ground. You need someone who's going after them the whole time. And, and we were like, yeah, yeah. And we were thinking of an adult. And he was like, wouldn't it be scarier if it was a kid who was like really driven? And, and I said, can he have a scar? <laughs> and that's how, that's how Zuka. So like that came from that. And that, but that's part of why Eric uh, recruited me and I introduced him to Mike. It's like, it's like he had seen that I was someone that you can collaborate with. And it's not just this one sided, uh, you know, the artists over here and the suits over there. And it's a war. It's like, you, you gotta, they're the company's the ones risking millions of dollars on these things. And so you've got to figure out, it's, I always say it's a Venn diagram. You figure out what they need and what you need as an artist and a storyteller. And, just try to figure out what fits in the middle. You know, Dante and I were talking about all the different characters in the show and how much we love them and sort of wondering how you felt you were reflected in those characters. And Dante just totally blew my mind. He was like, you know, Brian is Zuko and Mike is Aang. <laughs> how much truth is there to that? It's true. <laughs> it's There's true. some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah, it. I forgot one that revealed to me, or you guys revealed it, or something happened, and I was like, "Oh my god!" It, it was like a epiphany. I think it's one of those things that just—I mean, it kind of naturally happened because we're both fueling this world and these characters, and you know, and like anything you create, like I, especially now, I notice like there's in every character I can see aspects of myself, but you kind of end up identifying with like one of the, the main characters. And I've always sort of like had a soft spot for Aang and Brian's always identified with Zuko a little more. And it's just sort of seemed to work out that way that your personalities sort of, you know, get infused in the work in different ways. Sure. And all the characters like Sokka and Katara, there's like, you know, little parts of us and all those personalities and characters and storylines, you know, Mike is like a peaceful, mellow avatar airbender yeah round perfectly round head um <laughs> you know and i am i am definitely much more fiery and impassioned and driven in a sort of self-destructive way <laughs> sometimes <laughs> but but we balance each other out but have an amazing redemptive arc yeah dude i'm telling you i can't and listen i am by the way do everyone must know i don't mean anything like, I love teasing Dante, and Dante loves teasing me. There is no part of me that's like, I can't believe everyone loves Zuko the most on Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> because I love Zuko so much. We love the villain who's been hurt and who is given the opportunity to come back from that. Yeah, well, things that people always ask me, and of course, I don't have the answers because I am the actor who played it, and they're always like, did you know? First of all, they like, bring me to the side everywhere. People, cons, no cons, just people that find out I'm Zuko, or they like want to have this discussion with me. <laughs> and they're like, literally, this is the best redemptive arc in the history of Hollywood. I'm like, what are you guys talking about, A? Oh, wow. And they were like, did you know this arc from the beginning? And my whole thing is like, oh, it's like, no, for me as an actor, I'm like, no idea. I don't know what they were doing. I thought I was coming on to be some bad guy with a scar, and I was like this, like, whatever, I'm the bad guy. It was a lot like, you know, like they say when they did uh, when they did Casablanca, like no one knew what the ending was. The actors, Bogey and Lauren Bacall, just did the movie, and then by the end, that's what the end was. And I feel for an actor, for me in this particular project, I was like, I had no clue what we were doing week to week. Yeah. It's it it's in the series Bible. I mean, we knew that Zuko was going to become Aang's teacher. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the funny part is like even after in the early days of the internet, when there was like this was pre social media kids out there. So <laughs> let me tell you, uh, there was message boards about you know TV shows, and I was didn't know much about them. But I remember after our first episodes came out. You know, there were people online talking about the shows and 
everyone was would say like, oh, it's so obvious Zuko's gonna become good. He's gonna turn and become good in the end. So like they were already like picking up on that redemptive arc, yeah. like pretty. And I can't say we we weren't like trying to hide it, but yeah, I was just a dumb actor going, I'm not playing <laughs> it like that. I don't know. I'm like, I want to kill this dude. How about that? I know. I know. <laughs> well, I was going to say, too, that feeds back into the whole idea that, like, how could you have known that there would even be people of a mature age that would be into discussing where the show was going on a message board? I mean, that's perhaps not what you were expecting when you were, were creating the show for Nickelodeon and they were sort of hammering in, like, the age group. Yeah. No, I mean, back then, that was not a common... I mean, it, it existed. I knew. I I remember there was like the Twin Peaks message board. Yeah, like, that's what message boards were for. Twin Peaks, dude. Yeah, like like, but it was not like going on Facebook or Instagram or something or yeah, Tumblr. This could be or the last big, the last big franchise IP show that has been created without any social media. Well, but there, I mean, there maybe not social media. Yeah, because right yeah. after us, social media happened. Because I remember when we came out. None of us had Facebooks. None of us had Twitter. Friendster, us- Friendster existed because when I when I was living <laughs> in Seoul, when we were working on the test pilot, I remember I had a Friendster profile. <laughs> and there was like that was the days of uh oh I'm forgetting the the, the music one what was the music MySpace. MySpace, yeah, that was that was like around I really then. had that at the ready. Yeah. It was I the birth, the birth like, of MySpace. I still own stock in MySpace. <laughs> oh, MySpace? Av- yep, yeah, still going strong. Uh, feel free to check it out. MySpace pages. Av- Avatarspirit.net was our big fan site, and that formed, I think, right after the pilot premiered. Right on. In 2005, and there was another one, I think Avatar Horizons or something. So these two fan sites formed right in the wake of the first episode airing. So. Wow. I mean, people identified with the show right away, and and it found an audience. And to your point, Janet, not just a not just like a target demo, you know, audience that never surprised us. I think because Mike and I, we've always said like our test audience is Mike and I. Right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> just make sure we like it, you know. And there's yeah. so many kid shows made for kids that I can't sit through. It's like screeching nonstop, and uh, I'm like, why would anyone want to work on that? You know, <laughs> like we 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 all we made a show we wanted to watch and that we wanted to work on. That would be interesting for us to work on. You don't always work on shows that you want to watch or that you want to work on. So you brought up being in Seoul, and had you been there before for Zim? Is that how you ended yeah. up? Because that feels like a big yeah. leap to go and actually be there for the pilot, which was only like, is it eleven? It's like 11-ish minutes or something? Yeah, so, and, and again, you know, this this point I'm trying to hammer about Mike. Mike was going to be good no matter what. But, like, just one of his many attributes is, like, he's very good as a director and I would say also as, like, a producer because Mike looks at the big picture. If he's directing, directing an episode, he's thinking about the entire episode. If he's doing a scene in Act 3, he's thinking about how that might reference a scene in Act 1. And I being like Zuko, the obsessive, you know, I might zoom in and be like, I'm going to squeeze as much life out of this moment, out of this scene, out of this one turn of character or something. And not that we each of us don't have the ability to do the opposite, but that's where I think our like tendencies lie. And that's why we balance each other out so well. We have a lot of things that just totally overlap and we have a lot of similar traits, but Mike's always really good at the macro. So, but it's not like I was, I also kind of came into the industry and I was a character designer, but I was like, well, what's my friend doing as a director? What are his tasks? What jobs does he have? What is the prop designer doing? What is this timer? I've never seen that before. What is a timer doing? How do they figure out the lip movement? You know, you're just paying attention yeah. to everything. So yeah, when I, when I was 24, I got sent over to South Korea to work with the animation studio that was doing Zim. Had you been there before? No, it was my first time. That's so cool. How exciting. It was awesome. It was, it was super exciting. It was my first time to Asia where I had always wanted to go. And I loved it. And I made friends. And I just fell in love with Korea. So when I was there, I wasn't, you know, just like, oh, I'm here just to do my job on Zim and and help 
train these artists to draw the characters on model or whatever. I was like, how does this system work? You know, I was being yeah. provided this incredible rare opportunity for an American animation uh, person to see this other totally integral, really important part of the process. And I just didn't feel like they, those artists and those crews were being used to their full potential by the American animation industry. And, um, and I, so I was really paying attention and asking questions and getting to know people and, um, and came back and talked to Mike about it, you know? And, and so as much as we, I always say this, but as much as we had creative ideas, story ideas, character ideas, we had production ideas. I honestly, I think it was like 50, 50. We were like, what if we, a lot of the stuff that we would talk about, I was like, what if we ran a show like this? What if we changed this? What if we gave the overseas animation studio and animators more creative, like we empowered them to be more creatively involved and we actually let them be animators instead of telling them what to animate on those timing sheets and stuff. So, so yeah, it's, that's what I mean about paying attention. It's like seeing how things work and seeing if there's a way to change the process to, for a better, more efficient or better quality work, you know? Well, that, that's amazing. And it leads me into, you know, what people ask me a lot, I mean, you guys being in Asia, working with Asian artists, and talking about all the Asian influence in the show and other different influences in the show, and me being an Asian actor and, and Mako, hiring me and Mako, being a part of the show. And this is before all this whole, you know, what's been going on in Hollywood in the last, you know, I'd say five, six years about cultural influence and authenticity. And um, even though you guys are caucasian guys i was like these guys actually did it with what we really want is to approach things with respect and cultural significance and not just brush things off and i was like these guys were doing this 20 years ago uh, approaching it i've had conversations with them we talked about the way they approached the the martial arts with sifu kiso and all these guys i'm like no one's perfect but this is the direction that we were going in 20 years ago, and now it feels like the rest of Hollywood is catching up with kind of having integrity when approaching ethnic diversity and, and getting people from different ethnicities involved in the stories we're telling. And it sounds like you, you kind of innately went there even before you got on Avatar, you know, and that's one of the things I love about how you guys approached the project the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just, I mean, certainly at the time, we were conscious of it, but it was also partly, I think we just naturally want to respect people and respect cultures. You know, the whole reason we, you know, part of the reason we created this was admiration of Miyazaki's films and, uh, you know, Asian culture and stuff. So it definitely came out of a, a love of it and an appreciation of it. So, you know, it was just natural to try to honor it as best we could. And yeah, like you said, I don't sure we made some missteps along the way and, and and now we're obviously even more aware and more conscious and and to uh do it do it right yeah i think the the main thing was we tried not to and again of course we surely have had missteps but we try you, you try not to do othering you know when i did get to leave even when i got to go to to the uk that was the first time i left the country as a young young person um right after school it's like, I, I just never, when I would travel the world, I never thought, yeah, I'm the, I'm the American, you know, I'm the, and then, oh, there's all these other cultures. I just figure I'm no different than anybody else. Everybody has a totally different experience. I could have been born anywhere in the world. I'm not, you know, and I take, I just, but I find culture interesting. I find that fact that everyone isn't born in the same place and has a different experience to be completely interesting and and that's why even the avatar world isn't monolithic it is very multicultural you know and there isn't one we are two white american dudes but there isn't one person who could represent the entire avatar world you know it is it is just a and it's very much about these different cultures coexisting and and the the beauty and the and the the pain that comes out of that. And, and it's, that's why it's, it's, it's not about, it's just about a world that's trying to find balance and it's trying to coexist. And so we approached it that way. I think like Mike said, that's kind of our default attitudes anyway, 
you know, but yeah, it was just, I mean, utmost respect, not only the cultural stuff, but like Mike said, I mean, even just anime, you know, we wanted to do a love letter to anime and not just copy it, you know, and in some ways I know it would have looked better if I had just copied stuff. Um, but I was trying to do our little, little crummy version of it, you know, like, <laughs> like put some of our thing into it. That's a and, big discussion too. Is it anime or is it not anime? Is it anime? I'm like, yeah, this is American. So if it, it, at the very least it's American anime, but well, I don't know what it is. You know, the anime just kind of me. I mean, you, you, you could go speak to 20 top directors in Japan and I think you'd get, and ask them what is anime and I bet you'd get 20 different answers. That's also right. not a monolithic thing. Also, I think it's just short for animation. <laughs> you know, I know, it, right? Like, it became a thing, but, you know, um, but we, we just, we love that stuff too. And, and I felt, I mean, when I saw Foodie Cootie, I, I almost cried. I mean, it, it just, it destroyed me because I was like, oh, okay, we're in the dark ages over here in this America. I didn't think the American TV industry was like some like, hey, you better do what we're you know, we're the, we're the hotshot cowboys. Like I'm looking at Foodie Cootie in 2000 or 2001 going, oh, okay, we're 20, 30 years behind here. Like, what are we doing? You know? And how can I, how could we even get a little bit of this magic into an American, a show produced, you know, by an American studio? In a lot of ways, it became like a gateway drug for like a whole generation of American audiences to anime now anime is so big on netflix and on all these other mm -hmm. streaming platforms Crunchyroll, and a lot of people found it or got a taste for it through i mean we're, we're, we're a gateway drug to anime you know anime <laughs> i never thought of that but i guess maybe maybe some people probably were like hey i like this what else is there that's similar and that's cool if that's how they got into it all right, friends, that will do it for the first half of our conversation with our wonderful creators, Mike and Ryan. We have a fantastic second half available to you in just a couple of days, and it is not to be missed. Remember, you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts or the iHeartRadio app or Spotify or just wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe. We'll talk to you next time on Braving the Elements.